This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. To find out more information, and to learn how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 1, by James Boswell. Section 22. As one of the little occasional advantages which he did not disdain to take by his pen, as a man whose profession was literature, he this year accepted of a guinea from Mr. Robert Dodsley for writing the introduction to the London Chronicle, an evening newspaper, and even in so slight a performance exhibited peculiar talents. This chronicle still subsists, and from what I observed when I was abroad, has a more extensive circulation upon the continent than any of the English newspapers. It was constantly read by Johnson himself, and it is but just to observe that it has all along been distinguished for good sense, accuracy, moderation, and delicacy. Another instance of the same nature has been communicated to me by the Reverend Dr. Thomas Campbell, who has done himself considerable credit by his own writings. Quote, Sitting with Dr. Johnson one morning alone, he asked me if I had known Dr. Madden, who was author of the premium scheme in Ireland. On my answering in the affirmative, and also that I had for some years lived in his neighborhood, etc., he begged of me that, when I returned to Ireland, I would endeavor to procure for him a poem of Dr. Madden's, called Bolter's Monument. The reason, said he, why I wish for it, is this. When Dr. Madden came to London, he submitted that work to my castigation, and I remember I blotted a great many lines and might have blotted many more, without making the poem worse. However, the doctor was very thankful, and very generous, for he gave me ten guineas, which was to me, at that time, a great sum. End quote. He this year resumed his scheme of giving an edition of Shakespeare with notes. He issued proposals of considerable length, in which he showed that he perfectly well knew what a variety of research such an undertaking required, but his indolence prevented him from pursuing it with that diligence which alone can collect those scattered facts that genius, however acute, penetrating, and luminous, cannot discover by its own force. It is remarkable that at this time his fancied activity was for the moment so vigorous that he promised his work should be published before Christmas, 1757. Yet nine years elapsed before it saw the light. His throes in bringing it forth had been severe and remittent, and at last we may almost conclude that the Caesarian operation was performed by the knife of Churchill, whose upbraiding satire, I dare say, made Johnson's friends urge him to dispatch. Quote, 
he for subscribers baits his hook and takes your cash but where's the book no matter where wise fear you know forbids the robbing of a foe but what to serve our private ends forbids the cheating of our friends about this period he was offered a living of considerable value in lincolnshire if he were inclined to enter into holy orders it was a rectory in the gift of mr langton the father of his much valued friend but he did not accept of it partly i believe from a conscientious motive being persuaded that his temper and habits rendered him unfit for that assiduous and familiar instruction of the vulgar and ignorant which he held to be an essential duty in the clergyman and partly because his love of a london life was so strong that he would have thought himself an exile in any other place particularly if residing in the country whoever would wish to see his thoughts upon that subject displayed in their full force may peruse the adventurer number 126 1757 etat 48 in 1757 it does not appear that he published anything except some of those articles in the literary magazine which have been mentioned that magazine after johnson ceased to write in it gradually declined though the popular epithet of anti-gallican was added to it and in july 1758 it expired he probably prepared a part of his shakespeare this year and he dictated a speech on the subject of an address to the throne after the expedition to rochefort which was delivered by one of his friends i know not in what public meeting it is printed in the gentleman's magazine for october seventeen eighty five as his and bears sufficient marks of authenticity by the favor of mr joseph cooper walker of the treasury dublin i have obtained a copy of the following letter from johnson to the venerable author of dissertations on the history of ireland to charles o'connor esq sir i have lately by favor of mr faulkner seen your account of ireland and cannot forbear to solicit a prosecution of your design sir william temple complains that ireland is less known than any other country as to its ancient state the natives have had little leisure and little encouragement for enquiry and strangers not knowing the language have had no ability i have long wished that the irish literature was cultivated ireland is known by tradition to have been once the seat of piety and learning and surely it would be very acceptable to all those who are curious either in the original of nations or the affinities of languages to be further informed of the revolution of a people so ancient and once so illustrious what relation there is between the welch and irish language 
or between the language of Ireland and that of Biscay, deserves enquiry. Of these provincial and unextended tongues, it seldom happens that more than one are understood by any one man, and therefore it seldom happens that a fair comparison can be made. I hope you will continue to cultivate this kind of learning, which has too long lain neglected, and which, if it be suffered to remain in oblivion for another century, may, perhaps, never be retrieved. As I wish well to all useful undertakings, I would not forbear to let you know how much you deserve, in my opinion, from all lovers of study, and how much pleasure your work has given to, Sir, your most obliged and most humble servant, Sam Johnson. London, April 9th, 1757. To the Reverend Mr. Thomas Wharton. Dear Sir, Dr. Marsili of Padua, a learned gentleman and good Latin poet, has a mind to see Oxford. I have given him a letter to Dr. Huddesford, and shall be glad if you will introduce him and show him anything in Oxford. I am printing my new edition of Shakespeare. I long to see you all, but cannot conveniently come yet. You might write to me now and then, if you were good for anything. But, honores mulant mores. Professors forget their friends. I shall certainly complain to Miss Jones. I am your most obliged and humble servant, Sam Johnson. London, June 21st, 1757. Please to make my compliments to Mr. Whisk. Mr. Burney, having enclosed to him an extract from the review of his dictionary in the Bibliothèque des Savants, and a list of subscribers to his Shakespeare, which Mr. Burney had procured in Norfolk, he wrote the following answer. To Mr. Burney, in Lynn, Norfolk. Sir, that I may show myself sensible of your favors, and not commit the same fault a second time, I make haste to answer the letter which I received this morning. The truth is, the other likewise was received, and I wrote an answer. But being desirous to transmit you some proposals and receipts, I waited till I could find a convenient conveyance, and day was passed after day, till other things drove it from my thoughts. Yet not so, but that I remember with great pleasure your commendation of my dictionary. Your praise was welcome, not only because I believe it was sincere, but because praise has been very scarce. A man of your candor will be surprised when I tell you that among all my acquaintance there were only two who, upon the publication of my book, did not endeavor to depress me with threats of censure from the public, or with objections learned from those who had learned them from my own preface. Yours is the only letter of good will that I have received, though indeed I am promised something of that sort from Sweden. 
How my new edition will be received, I know not. The subscription has not been very successful. I shall publish about March. If you can direct me how to send proposals, I should wish that they were in such hands. I remember, sir, in some of the first letters with which you favored me, you mentioned your lady. May I inquire after her? In return for the favors which you have shown me, it is not much to tell you that I wish you and her all that can conduce to your happiness. I am, sir, your most obliged and most humble servant, Sam Johnson. Go Square, December 24th, 1757. In 1758 we find him, it should seem, in as easy and pleasant a state of existence as constitutional happiness ever permitted him to enjoy. To Bennett Langton, Esquire, at Langton, Lincolnshire. Dearest Sir, I must indeed have slept very fast, not to have been awakened by your letter. None of your suspicions are true. I am not much richer than when you left me, and what is worse, my omission of an answer to your first letter will prove that I am not much wiser. But I go on as I formerly did, designing to be some time or other both rich and wise, and yet cultivate neither mind nor fortune. Do you take notice of my example, and learn the danger of delay? When I was as you are now, towering in the confidence of twenty-one, little did I suspect that I should be at forty-nine what I now am. But you do not seem to need my admonition. You are busy in acquiring and in communicating knowledge, and while you are studying, enjoy the end of study by making others wiser and happier. I was much pleased with the tale that you told me of being tutor to your sisters. I, who have no sisters or brothers, look with some degree of innocent envy on those who may be said to be born to friends, and cannot see, without wonder, how rarely that native union is afterwards regarded. It sometimes, indeed, happens that some supervenient cause of discord may overpower this original amity. But it seems to me more frequently thrown away with levity, or lost by negligence, than destroyed by injury or violence. We tell the ladies that good wives make good husbands. I believe it is a more certain position that good brothers make good sisters. I am satisfied with your stay at home, as juvenile with his friend's retirement to Cume. I know that your absence is best, though it be not best for me. Quamvis digressu, veteris confusis amici, laudo tamen vacuis, quod sedem figere cumis distenet atque unum civem donare sibelae. Langton is a good cumae, 
but who must be Sibylla? Mrs. Langton is as wise as Sibyl, and as good, and will live, if my wishes can prolong life, till she shall, in time, be as old. But she differs in this, that she has not scattered her precepts to the wind, at least not those which she bestowed upon you. The two Whartons just looked into the town, and were taken to see Cleone, where, David says, they were starved for want of company to keep them warm. David and Dotty have had a new quarrel, and, I think, cannot conveniently quarrel any more. Cleone was well acted by all the characters, but Bellamy left nothing to be desired. I went the first night and supported it, as well as I might. For Dotty, you know, is my patron, and I would not desert him. The play was very well received. Dotty, after the danger was over, went every night to the stage side and cried at the distress of poor Cleone. I have left off housekeeping and therefore made presents of the game which you were pleased to send me. The pheasant I gave to Mr. Richardson, the bustard to Dr. Lawrence, and the pot I placed with Miss Williams, to be eaten by myself. She desires that her compliments and good wishes may be accepted by the family, and I make the same request for myself. Mr. Reynolds has, within these few days, raised his price to twenty guineas a head, and Miss is much employed in miniatures. I know not anybody else whose prosperity has increased since you left them. Murphy is to have his Orphan of China acted next month, and is therefore, I suppose, happy. I wish I could tell you of any great good to which I was approaching, but at present my prospects do not much delight me. However, I am always pleased when I find that you, dear sir, remember your affectionate, humble servant, Sam Johnson. January ninth, 1758 To Mr. Burney, at Lynn, Norfolk Sir, your kindness is so great, and my claim to any particular regard from you so little, that I am at a loss how to express my sense of your favors. But I am indeed much pleased to be thus distinguished by you. I am ashamed to tell you that my Shakespeare will not be out so soon as I promised my subscribers, but I did not promise them more than I promised myself. It will, however, be published before summer. I have sent you a bundle of proposals, which, I think, do not profess more than I have hitherto performed. I have printed many of the plays and have hitherto left very few passages unexplained. Where I am quite at a loss, I confess my ignorance, which is seldom done by commentators. I have likewise enclosed twelve receipts. Not that I mean to impose upon you the trouble of pushing them, 
with more importunity than may seem proper, but that you may rather have more than fewer than you shall want. The proposals you will disseminate as there shall be an opportunity. I once printed them at length in the Chronicle, and some of my friends, I believe Mr. Murphy, who formerly wrote the Gray's Inn Journal, introduced them with a splendid encomium. Since the life of Brown, I have been a little engaged, from time to time, in the literary magazine, but not very lately. I have not the collection by me, and therefore cannot draw out a catalogue of my own parts, but will do it and send it. Do not buy them, for I will gather all those that have anything of mine in them, and send them to Mrs. Burney, as a small token of gratitude for the regard which she is pleased to bestow upon me. I am, sir, your most obliged and most humble servant, Sam Johnson. London, March 8, 1758. Dr. Burney has kindly favored me with the following memorandum, which I take the liberty to insert in his own genuine easy style. I love to exhibit sketches of my illustrious friend by various eminent hands. Quote, Soon after this, Mr. Burney, during a visit to the capital, had an interview with him in Go Square, where he dined and drank tea with him, and was introduced to the acquaintance of Mrs. Williams. After dinner, Mr. Johnson proposed to Mr. Burney to go up with him into his garret, which, being accepted, he found there about five or six Greek folios, a deal writing desk, and a chair and a half. Johnson, giving to his guest the entire seat, tottered himself on one with only three legs and one arm. Here he gave Mr. Burney Mrs. Williams' history, and showed him some volumes of his Shakespeare, already printed, to prove that he was in earnest. Upon Mr. Burney's opening the first volume, at the Merchant of Venice, he observed to him that he seemed to be more severe on Warburton than Theobald. "'Oh, poor Tib,' said Johnson, "'he was ready knocked down to my hands.' Warburton stands between me and him. But, sir, said Mr. Burney, you'll have Warburton upon your bones, won't you? No, sir, he'll not come out. He'll only growl in his den. But you think, sir, that Warburton is a superior critic to Theobald? Oh, sir, he'd make two and fifty Theobalds cut into slices. The worst of Warburton is that he has a rage for saying something, when there's nothing to be said. Mr. Burney then asked him whether he had seen the letter which Warburton had written in answer to a pamphlet addressed to the most impudent man alive. He answered it in the negative. Mr. Burney told him it was supposed to be written by Mallet. The controversy now raged between the friends of Pope and Bolingbroke, 
and Warburton and Mallet were the leaders of the several parties. Mr. Burney asked him then if he had seen Warburton's book against Bolingbroke's philosophy. No, sir, I have never read Bolingbroke's impiety, and therefore am not interested about its confutation. On the 15th of April, he began a new periodical paper entitled The Idler, which came out every Saturday in a weekly newspaper called The Universal Chronicle, or Weekly Gazette, published by Newberry. These essays were continued till April 5th, 1760. Of 103, their total number, 12 were contributed by his friends, of which numbers 33, 93, and 96 were written by Mr. Thomas Wharton, number 67 by Mr. Langton, and number 76, 79, and 82 by Sir Joshua Reynolds. The concluding words of number 82 and pollute his canvas with deformity, being added by Johnson, as Sir Joshua informed me. The Idler is evidently the work of the same mind which produced the Rambler, but has less body and more spirit. It has more variety of real life and greater facility of language. He describes the miseries of idleness, with the lively sensations of one who has felt them. And in his private memorandums while engaged in it, we find, This year I hope to learn diligence. Many of these excellent essays were written as hastily as an ordinary letter. Mr. Langton remembers Johnson when, on a visit at Oxford, asking him one evening how long it was till the post went out and on being told about half an hour, he exclaimed, Then we shall do very well. He upon this instantly sat down and finished an idler, which it was necessary should be in London the next day. Mr. Langton, having signified a wish to read it, Sir, said he, you shall not do more than I have done myself. He then folded it up and sent it off. Yet there are in The Idler several papers which show as much profundity of thought and labor of language as any of this great man's writings. Number 14. Robbery of Time. Number 24. Thinking. Number 41. Death of a Friend. Number 43. Flight of Time. Number 51. Domestic greatness unattainable. Number 52. Self-denial. Number 58. Actual, how short of fancied, excellence. Number 89. Physical evil, moral good. And his concluding paper on The Horror of the Last will prove this assertion. I know not why a motto, the usual trapping of periodical papers, is prefixed to very few of the idlers, as I have heard Johnson commend the custom 
and he never could be at a loss for one, his memory being stored with innumerable passages of the classics. In this series of essays, he exhibits admirable instances of grave humor, of which he had an uncommon share. Nor on some occasions has he repressed that power of sophistry which he possessed in so eminent a degree. In number 11, he treats with the utmost contempt the opinion that our mental faculties depend, in some degree, upon the weather. An opinion which they who have never experienced its truth are not to be envied, and of which he himself could not but be sensible, as the effects of weather upon him were very visible. Yet thus he declaims, Surely nothing is more reproachful to a being endowed with reason than to resign its powers to the influences of the air, and live in dependence on the weather and the wind for the only blessings which nature has put into our power, tranquillity and benevolence. This distinction of seasons is produced only by imagination operating on luxury. To temperance, every day is bright, and every hour is propitious to diligence. He that shall resolutely excite his faculties, or exert his virtues, will soon make himself superior to the seasons, and may set at defiance the morning mist and the evening damp, the blasts of the east and the clouds of the south. I think the Romans call it Stoicism. But in this number of his idler, his spirits seem to run riot, for in the wantonness of his disquisition he forgets for a moment even the reverence for that which he held in high respect, and describes the attendant on a court as one whose business is to watch the looks of a being weak and foolish as himself. Alas, it is too certain that where the frame has delicate fibers and there is a fine sensibility, such influences of the air are irresistible. He might as well have bid defiance to the ague, the palsy, and all other bodily disorders. Such boasting of the mind is false elevation. His unqualified ridicule of rhetorical gesture or action is not surely a test of truth. Yet we cannot help admiring how well it is adapted to produce the effect which he wished. Quote, Neither the judges of our laws nor the representatives of our people would be much affected by labored gesticulation, or believe any man the more because he rolled his eyes, or puffed his cheeks, or spread abroad his arms, or stamped the ground, or thumped his breast, or turned his eyes sometimes to the ceiling, and sometimes to the floor. End of section 22 this recording by Christian Picot at communistrevolution.org.